2: The long-delayed report into Russian interference in British politics was released this week, revealing that successive governments have been too complacent.
1: The report reveals that no one in government knew if Russia interfered in or sought to influence the referendum because they did not want to know. The UK government have actively avoided looking for evidence that Russia interfered.
2: Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this episode, I'll be looking at the detailed report on how Russia has wormed its way right into the heart of Westminster to try and influence events, with our political editor, George Parker, and political correspondent, Laura Hughes. And later, I'll be looking at why Boris Johnson has become so concerned about the future of the United Kingdom and whether Scottish independence is becoming an inevitability with our columnist Robert Shrimsley and Scotland correspondent Muir Dickey. George and Laura, welcome back. Hi there, Seb. Hello. So I'm actually recording this week's podcast down from sunny Cornwall. I've had my first semi-holiday in the coronavirus age. Things down here are quiet, but feels surprisingly normal. There's plenty of people about. And with Westminster now into its sunny recess, I think everybody's heading away. George, what are your coronavirus holiday plans?
1: Well, I'm currently sitting in the House of Commons and I have to say it's looking very deserted. And speaking to MPs, they're all exhausted and can't wait to get out to their staycation or even to go abroad. But yes, I'm planning to go abroad myself. I thought that uh, given the fact that lockdown was being lifted and the quarantine restrictions were being lifted, I thought I might be able to pick up a few cheapo flights abroad so I'm going to go down to Greece to the island of Rhodes uh, to do a bit of Mamma Mia type action down there.
2: Excellent although I feel sorry for the local people having to see and witness that from you. (laughs) Laura your summer is going to be a little bit different from the rest of us. How is coronavirus affecting your big life changes?
0: (laughs) Well while you all swan off on your holidays I will be working slash nesting ahead of hopefully giving birth at the very beginning of September. So, yeah, I'm not really going anywhere.
2: <laughs> well, at least you'll be working hard with me in Westminster until we both manage to escape. But as seems typical in the run-up to the summer break, Westminster has been excessively busy in a week that saw many eyes turned towards Russia. After seven months, one general election and delays by two prime ministers, the Intelligence and Security Committee released its investigation into Russia's efforts to shape proceedings in London. There was no smoking gun, no single event that the committee said could be pinpointed on Vladimir Putin or his acolytes. But the committee's report was still damning, suggesting that recent governments did as little as possible to investigate the problem and to protect our democratic events, as we heard from the SNP member of the ISC committee, Stuart Hosey, at the top of the show. Not only that, the investigation raised questions about Russian money and whether it has undue influence over the Conservative Party. So George, what did you make of the report?
1: I suppose the simplest thing to say about it is that the report didn't tell people what they half expected it to. As you say, there was no firm evidence that the Russians interfered in the 2016 Brexit referendum, which was, I think, the thing that many people had hoped to see, particularly of a remain disposition, instead of which it concluded that there was no real evidence apart from open source evidence, in other words, published evidence the Russians had tried to influence through networks such as RT or Sputnik or through bots and trolls. But the most damning conclusion of the report, really, was that though there was no evidence, it was mainly because A, the security services hadn't tried to look for it, and B, they hadn't been directed to look for it by politicians. And that really was the focus of the report. Why on earth was it that despite the fact that we know very well that the Russians had tried to interfere with the 2016 US presidential elections, why was no effort made to try and find out whether the Russians had intervened in this hugely significant event in our national life, the Brexit referendum? And I think the two explanations that are given, one in the report was that security services didn't want to touch it with a 10-foot barge pole because they didn't want to be seen to be interfering in the democratic life of the UK. And the second conclusion, which wasn't in the report, but I think many people will have drawn, is that successive prime ministers, Theresa May and Boris Johnson, after the referendum, didn't feel it was in their political interest to reopen that can of worms and to get back into the question of why the country voted as it did, and did the Kremlin in some way interfere with the results. You can understand why Theresa May wouldn't have wanted to do it because it would have looked like she was trying to, in some way, challenge the result. And that would have gone down extremely badly with the Eurosceptics. And it's fairly obvious why Boris Johnson himself wouldn't want to do it. So all we got the day after the report was an assertion that the British state had these things under control and a blank refusal by Boris Johnson to go back and reopen it.
2: Well, there was a bit of a tit-for-tat for this between Mr Johnson and Keir Starmer at Prime Minister's questions when the pair went backwards and forwards on why the report had been delayed and was the government really taking enough hard action on Russia. The Prime Minister received that
1: report 10 months ago. Given that the threat is described as immediate and urgent, why on earth did the Prime Minister sit on that report for so long?
2: Uh, Mr. Speaker, actually, when I was uh, Foreign Secretary, for the period that I've been in office, we've been taking the strongest possible action against Russian uh, wrongdoing, orchestrating, I seem to remember, the expulsion of 130 Russian diplomats, 153 Russian diplomats. Well, still, Laura, the report said that the UK badly underestimated the threat posed by Moscow do you think that was incompetence or, as George was saying, was it this general willingness to turn a blind eye and maybe focus on other threats facing the UK?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think actually Kevin Jones, who sits on the committee, summed it up really well when he said that the outrage isn't that there was interference, but that nobody wanted to know if there was And whilst there is some criticism levied at the security services, that responsibility is really put on the doorstep of the government. But it's interesting when you really look at the text of that, there were only a few lines in the report that reference what MI5 responded to when these MPs were looking into this. So they obviously didn't want to get involved in this sort of line that everybody took their eye off the ball in relations to Russia. This is in large part blamed because obviously the threat of Islamist terror has grown so enormously over the last few years that MI5's effort has been directed into looking at that. And the report's quite clear that obviously this focus on terrorism here was totally understandable. But they also suggest that this sort of extreme caution that George mentioned about agencies involving themselves in politically very sensitive issues is still quite illogical because clearly if it has been a threat, it's going to continue to be a threat. And I think that's the sort of crucial thing from the public looking at this. We know that there is anecdotal evidence of this. And if there has been some Russian involvement in past polls, well, what does that mean for future elections? And as George said, it's clear in some ways why perhaps Boris Johnson wanted to sit on this report for the amount of time he did, because A, it might have undermined the Brexit vote, but then also it might have undermined the result of the 2019 election. If really we have concluded that Russians may possibly Mm. be influencing these huge, huge votes, what does that mean for our democracy going forward and, and what exactly is going to be done about it?
1: As Laura was saying that one of the excuses advanced was that the security services were focused on Islamist terrorism. And of course, that was a big problem in the immediate aftermath of the Brexit vote. But nevertheless, the idea that the security services can't deal with more than one threat at a time is ludicrous. If you think back to the Cold War, they were dealing with Irish terrorism and real Russian activity at the same time. They can easily do both.
2: Well, there's obviously been cause for the security service to be better funded following that, George, that MI5 has been saying that its budget dropped significantly following the end of the Cold War. And as you said, it's been focusing on Islamic terrorism. Do you think realistically MI5 and maybe MI6 are going to get some more money? And they're also getting a shake-up, as well as we believe Dominic Cummings has got his eyes on looking at how intelligence is overseen.
1: Well, the security services and the defence services are always asking for more money, aren't they? Whenever there's a problem, they always say that the answer is more money. I'm not sure that the security services are particularly underfunded at the moment. But, as you say, there is a, a big shake up underway, and we saw reports the other day that Dominic Cummings was planning a tour of sensitive for security sites around the country, including I think the SAS base in Herefordshire and GCHQ and Chelsea and places like that. And what we also know is that number 10 is overseeing this review into defence and security. So I think what we'll see is a lot more integration of defence and the security services. Some suggestion, indeed, that they might all be merged into one super security and defence department. I'm not sure if that is actually going to happen. That's been pretty much knocked down by number 10, but certainly a lot more integration. And as we see the shrinkage of conventional armed forces, and we're talking here possibly about the army shrinking to about 50,000 people, we're going to see an increased emphasis put on the money spent on softer power and more data-driven security-type activities.
2: Now, in this report, Laura, there were three democratic events that were highlighted where Russia tried to somehow influence or shape the events. The first one, as we've discussed, was the Brexit referendum. The report said there was no conclusive evidence that Russia had tried to swing the result towards Brexit, although we know the Putin regime loves disruption and therefore would have welcomed the Brexit result. The other two electoral events mentioned first was the 2014 independent Scottish referendum, where again Russia would have been pro independence. And before the report came, came out, there was a leak trail by Downing Street saying there was evidence suggesting this had happened.
0: Yeah, I mean, that is, again, one of the interesting points. Because if you're looking sort of big picture here as to why Russia would seek to stir things up in the UK, they're obviously going to be behind the vote that causes the most uncertainty and chaos. So yes, that would mean Scotland Potentially voting to leave in the Brexit referendum? Would they have tried to skew it in favour of Brexit? Because again, that would cause the most uncertainty.
2: Now, to flip it around to the other side, Jaws, let's look at the 2019 general election. That happened after this report was commissioned. But the Johnson government came out and said that Russia was actually involved somehow by disseminating these leaked documents of UK-US trade talks that somehow tried to help Jeremy Corbyn. So when you look at the influence of Russia here, I think the most disconcerting thing is that there's not always a pattern. They're not trying to help left-wing politics or right-wing politics. They're just trying to disrupt and influence everything. And I think that's what should be alarming about this, that there's no boundaries to what Russia's trying to do here. And I think the whole thing needs to be taken much more seriously by all parties because it could influence
1: anyone at any time. Well, I think that's true. Although the allegations made about 2019 election, again, were a little bit sketchy, weren't they? I mean, yes, Jeremy Corbyn ended up with a document, which was a factual document, actually about US-UK trade negotiations, which had already been acquired by someone else somewhere. It's just the Russians put the bellows under it. I think you're right. I mean, look, we don't want any interference in our internal elections. Interesting, one of the points made in the report was the fact that we've got a slightly antiquated paper-based voting system where people going to a polling station with a stubby pencil, putting an X on the piece of paper actually made our elections slightly harder to rig for foreign powers. But you're right, we should take this seriously. I just think it's a bit cynical, though, for the government to highlight the fact that they think the Russians were involved in helping Jeremy Corbyn, but then completely unprepared to look into the possibility that the Brexit result was uh, potentially rigged.
2: I think your cynicism is probably well served in this instance. Now, Laura, the other big thing in this report, of course, is about Russian money in both Westminster and the City of London. The report criticised London for being a laundromat for various money coming in from Russian visitors and has also attacked certain PR firms and members of the House of Lords to be called enablers of the Russian elite here. I think it's fair to say that, again, following the end of the Cold War, that London opened its doors to Russia and to Russian money. And that David Cameron did try to clamp down on this with unexplained wealth orders. But it feels like even more is going to have to be done, given what this report has said.
0: Yes. And we know that back in 1994, as early as then, the UK introduced this new investor visa and London became a real hotbed and a kind of top destination for oligarchs to come here with their money. And the government at the time and over the past few years has believed that Developing these links with these huge Russian companies and wealthy individuals is going to promote good governance in Russia because you have that link going on there. But actually, what this report has found is that that practice has inadvertently offered sort of mechanisms for illicit money to be recycled through the city of London. And then it really goes for the enablers, as you mentioned. So estate agents who are renting out big property to the Russian elite and lawyers who are working with them. The backdrop of this as well is that obviously the Conservative Party have received a lot of donations from very wealthy Russians over the years, millions of pounds, and therefore this sort of access that a lot of figures in Moscow have had to the highest ranks of the government, it really is quite damning. And There are a lot of people now calling for members of the House of Lords who have business interests linked to Russia or who might be working for Russian companies to really disclose exactly what their activity is and for registers of interest to be updated so that the public can see the influence that potentially these big Russian figures are having on our politics.
2: And George, it does feel as if the Conservative Party, which has taken money from Russian characters or those with links to the Putin regime for quite some time, is probably going to have to rethink that following this new era we're in where Boris Johnson has said this threat from Russia is real particularly the cyber threat here. And yet you've got these people giving millions of pounds to the Tory party. And it was highlighted on one newspaper front page this week that two members, in fact, of the Intelligence and Security Committee have taken sizeable donations from Russian individuals. Do you think eventually Russian money will leave right-wing politics in the UK?
1: Well, I think we have to hope so, don't we? The problem is, as the report identified, that this has become the new normal, that Russian money comes into the country. It's recycled. It goes into buying up all sorts of assets in the UK. So in the end, it's hard to know where the money came from exactly. And then the money, strangely enough, ends up in party coffers. And we've had the crazy example, which is still being investigated by journalists here, into the question of the wife of a former Russian finance minister, someone called Lubov Chunukin, who paid £90,000 to have a game of tennis with Boris Johnson back in February, at a time when Boris Johnson was actually sitting on the report we're discussing about. We were asking this week at Lobby whether this tennis match has actually taken place and the Prime Minister's people refuse to save. It's just a ludicrous situation that the Conservative Party and the Prime Minister's got himself into. And I think, as you say, the sooner we try and break that link between British politics and Russian money, the better. George and Laura, thank you.
2: Back in 2014, just after Scotland held its referendum on leaving the UK... Former Prime Minister David Cameron declared...
1: Now the debate has been settled for a generation, or as Alex Salmond has said, perhaps for a lifetime. So there can be no disputes, no reruns. We have heard the settled will of the Scottish people.
2: But six years later, and the threat of Scotland leaving the United Kingdom has returned. Scotland's nationalist First Minister Nicola Sturgeon remains wildly popular, while the Prime Minister Boris Johnson is less so. His handling of the coronavirus pandemic has only boosted the Scottish nationalist case, leading the Prime Minister to make an emergency mad dash north of the border to proclaim a renewed enthusiasm for the union. But the coronavirus pandemic has played into the constitutional arguments. When Mr Johnson visited Scotland this week, Nicola Sturgeon tried to spin the issue on its head.
0: Um, I don't think any of us, uh, and I include myself in this, should be trying to use covid and the pandemic and the crisis situation we have faced and, and continue to face as some kind of political campaigning tool. This is a pandemic that has taken the lives of more than 50,000 people across the UK. We've all tried to do our best but I don't think any of us have got any grounds to crow or to feel satisfied about this. It's not politics, it's not constitutional arguments.
2: Robert, why is this panic suddenly set into Downing Street now? Well, I think the panic has set in for the reasons you set out, which is that
3: Nicola Sturgeon, the SNP, leadership of Scotland, have had a good crisis in public opinion terms. In fact, Scotland hasn't had a particularly good pandemic, if you look at the numbers and if you look at the deaths. But Nicola Sturgeon's communication skills have impressed Scots, and she's done well by drawing on the comparisons between herself and the British government. The fact is, I think that this was meant to be the year many of them assumed the SNP might have enough jolts to knock it off course. The Salmon trial was meant to do great damage to the SNP leadership and possibly to Nicola Sturgeon. People were beginning to question the SNP governance of Scotland. They've been in power for over a decade. There were splits within the party in terms of their approach to a next referendum. So The Conservatives were hoping this would be a bad year. And this all builds up to the Scottish parliamentary elections next year, where if the SNP is able to get another majority, it will immediately use this to argue that it is time for a second referendum. So the Conservatives were hoping to stop it getting that majority. What's happened now is they're looking at the polling and they're seeing, actually, the SNP looks as likely to get a majority as ever. And we could be confronted with these new demands. And what do we do about them? The position up till now has been we're not going to agree to a second referendum. They had one six years ago. We're going to tough it out and actually dare them to hold an illegal referendum, which could have consequences for any future EU membership application. But there are a lot of fears within the government that that position simply might not hold.
2: Well, Muir, it's fantastic to have you on the podcast speaking to us from Scotland, where Mr Johnson has been visiting on Thursday. Uh, How was his visit received and what was the point of it?
4: Well, I'm speaking to from near Lossiemouth, which is one of the few bits of Scotland which voted for the Conservatives in the last UK general election. But even on this, what should be relatively safe territory, for uh, Mr Johnson, I've been struggling today to find any fans of it. And when he came to Scotland, he was essentially saying,
2: I care about the union. I believe in this. And by the way, I'm going to promise you more cash. How did that argument go down with people you've spoken to there?
4: The people that I spoke to shortly before Johnson arrived at uh, at Lossier Mouth were more likely to praise the communication and consistency of policy and the more cautious approaches taken. So when Mr. Johnson hopes that the union will take credit for the vast sums which have been supporting employment in Scotland and across the UK, I think that message is blunted by the feeling of many people that he has... Not been handling the crisis well, and that his uh, policies in England are not as uh, consistent or as clear as the SNP policies in Scotland. Well, Robert, the
2: fact that there's been increasing tensions that have been very public throughout the coronavirus crisis doesn't help Mr. Johnson's case that when the UK first went into lockdown, it was England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland followed the same trajectory. But leaving the lockdown has been much more difficult with England moving at a faster pace. And as Muir was saying, there's this perception that Scotland is putting health first while England is putting the economy first. Mr. Johnson is obviously wanted to do a UK-wide approach, but everybody here, including the leaders of the devolved administrations, are playing politics. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a lot
3: easier to put health first when you have responsibility for health policy and not responsibility for the overall state of the economy. So the fact is, the economic bailouts have been funded from London rather than from Edinburgh. So it's easy for Nicola Sturgeon to take that position. Now, I don't think there's actually anything wrong with different parts of the country operating slightly different policies in accordance with their actual need. If you think about the United States, lots of different states are offering different policies around lockdown. It doesn't have to be a major constitutional crisis. But I think one of the things that's shaken people in London particularly is the success that Nicola Sturgeon has had in, sh- in suggesting Boris Johnson, he's really just the Prime Minister of England. And if you're watching the press conferences and you're watching all of this from London, that's how it looks. Now, I think if you're in Scotland, most Scots and the polling supports already look to the Scottish government as their government. When people talk about the government, they think about... Hollywood. Nicola Sturgeon is A, a very, very gifted communicator, and B, as tough a political operator as they come. And part of the skill as a communicator that she has is not showing it. So she will miss no opportunity to push the nationalist cause during
2: this crisis. And Mir, could you sum up why Nicola Sturgeon remains so popular in Scotland? Because the SNP have obviously been in power for 13 years now. And by the normal laws of politics, you'd think there'd be some scepticism. Scottish people wanting an alternative, wanting to do things differently. And yet, based on some of the polls we've seen this week, in some ways, she's more
4: popular than ever. Well, there's a couple of obvious factors is that uh, the opposition, I think most people would agree in Scotland is not strong, that the leaders of the Conservative and Labour parties in Scotland have struggled to make public impact. And I think that the SNP, when things are going well for it, it can campaign both as an opposition party in opposition to Westminster and as a governing party able to spend money and, you know, hog the limelight in Holyrood. But I think from Edinburgh or from the Scottish perspective, there are strange elements, I think, of the way Boris Johnson has handled policy on the union during the coronavirus crisis. So while Sturgeon has been very careful to be trying not to directly politicise the crisis, uh, so for example, the SNP put its uh, independence referendum Push on hold for it and it's kind of letting the argument make itself. Uh, Mr. Johnson, by the big brouhaha about what really should be a very ordinary visit for a prime minister to part of the country that he's prime minister of, it becomes a sort of union saving exercise with lots of argument about how the coronavirus crisis is showing the strength of the union. I think that kind of plays into the SNP hands. And I know very strongly pro union Scots who have been holding their heads in their hands at times. You know, for example, when Mr Johnson announces policies on the easing of lockdown, which simply don't apply in Scotland, Northern Ireland or Wales, but doesn't say that, confusing the message for the population and appearing to kind of reject the the fact of devolution. Another moment was in the House of Parliament where Mr Johnson, he seemed to... um, Well, he said there's no such thing as a border between England and Scotland. There clearly is, and that there always has been, even after the union of the, the, the two countries in 1707. I mean, I have to jump in on a couple of those points.
3: I don't think it was a major concession of the SNP to stop talking about an independence referendum during the middle of the pandemic. I think it would have been cataclysmically bad for them to do so. But I think the one thing we have to mention here, because it's directly and totally relevant to what's going on, is Brexit. Because the moment everything changes in terms of the independence debate, is after the Brexit referendum. Scotland voted, I think, was 62% against leaving the EU. And it can legitimately argue that England has imposed Brexit upon Scotland and that this is the single best argument for why they need independence. It's a very powerful argument. And the Conservative Party's fortunes have been in a tailspin since Boris Johnson took over as Prime Minister. Theresa May actually managed to hold up with Ruth Davidson, hold up and improve the position of Scottish Tories when she went to the polls. But in the 2019 general election, Boris Johnson managed to lose, I think it was more than half the Tory seats in Scotland. And the SNP, which had been pushed back to around 36, 37% of the vote, got back up to 45%. The fact is Brexit is the thing that has changed the dynamic on Scottish independence. It's the unique event that allows the nationalists to say, we need another referendum because circumstances have changed. Whether you buy that or not, it is the argument they make. And Brexit is so deeply unpopular in most of Scotland that even people who voted to save the union, but who also voted to remain in the EU, are up for grabs now. And so as long as Boris Johnson and a hard Brexit government is running the UK, Nicola Sturgeon, as the main voice of the Remain camp in Scotland, is going to be a very, very powerful figure. And this is part of the problem that the Conservatives
4: have.
2: Samir, so, how inevitable do you think Scottish independence is looking at this stage? Because there's obviously one history that plays out over the next year that the SNP and Nicola Sturgeon remain very popular. Um, the Nationalists get a clear majority the next Scottish Parliament in May 2021. And eventually, although Downing Street says they will not countenance an independence referendum uh, in this Westminster Parliament, the pressure will grow too great. They have that independence referendum. And of course, we get back to many of the arguments we had in 2014. It's the head versus the heart in many ways. The head argument is the same about the money that go to Scotland. But it feels over the past six years, the heart argument for the union has become much weaker. And a lot of that, as Robert said, is to do with Brexit, but also the Boris Johnson government. You know, do you think they can do anything to tackle that?
4: Well, I think the supporters of the union, both in the government and in Scotland, have to find a narrative that is persuasive. And if Brexit proves to be economically damaging, as its critics suggest, it will become a source of grievance indefinitely. And we've had a move towards justifying the union on economic and fiscal grounds. And it's extraordinary to see how fundamentally the economic case that the Scottish National Party put out for an independent Scotland in 2014 has been demolished by the collapse of the oil price. And the challenges that an independent Scotland would have faced have been very graphically demonstrated by the coronavirus crisis. And yet support for independence has actually grown. Now, in in a campaign, if we were to have a referendum at some point in the near future, I think many Scots would take a hard look at what the economic and fiscal implications of independence would be, and that might well move support. But it's a very shaky peg for the UK government to hang its hopes for the union on. Because, Robert, the thing that
2: strikes me as the biggest problem is the lack of a strong unionist figure in the 2014 referendum. You had Alistair Darling who led that, but you also had David Cameron, who is a much more benign figure in Scotland than Boris Johnson is. Until they can find that person who's got that positive emotional message, I think those fears in Downing Street are going to continue. Yes, I mean, I spoke to a lot of people for a column I wrote about this at the beginning of the week. And
3: one of the things I was very struck by is the way that unionism is not refreshing itself in the way that nationalism is. You know, the nationalists have control of Scotland and the Scottish government. And if you want to be successful in Scottish politics, if you're interested in politics, you know, there's lots of great roots if you're a young nationalist. If you're a young unionist, it's much, much harder. And when you talk to them, the two names that crop up are Gordon Brown and Ruth Davidson. The problem with Gordon Brown is that he's not going to want to be figurehead of a campaign. He will want to run any campaign that he is the figurehead of. So people may be uncomfortable with that. Ruth Davidson actually, I think, is still quite a possible figure. And in a way, the fact that she's retired from politics officially makes it a bit easier. And also the fact that she broke with Boris Johnson and was known to be a Remainer might make her quite a plausible and attractive leader of the unionist campaign. So the unionists are going to have to find a credible leader and they're going to have to find a credible emotional message as well as an economic one. There is, of course, a gorgeous irony in this debate in that on the one side, you'll have the SNP who strongly supported Remain in the Brexit referendum arguing for all the economic damage that it would do to leave the European Union, arguing this time for emotionalism and nationalism and independence. And on the other side, you'll have Boris Johnson arguing that you must not cut yourself off from your largest market and look at all the economic costs
2: of severing the union. So it will be a change of roles for both of them. It does make the head spin a bit. And finally, me, if I could just come to you. So obviously, Downing Street say they won't allow a referendum to happen. They will resist for as long as possible. Let's say the SNP do get that majority in May next year. How long practically do you think number 10 can resist that? And is there any serious talk within the nationalists at the moment of having what could be termed a legal referendum where they hold it without Westminster's consent, but may not
4: have a binding impact? So it's not clear to me why Boris Johnson would in the near term accept a referendum, assuming that he retains his hefty majority in Parliament. He seems to be able to wave aside uh, Scottish demands for a, a referendum, at least until the next general election. But there's a much more tectonic shift going on in Scotland about identity, about how young people see themselves within the union. And I think whoever leads a campaign, if we have one, and when the referendum happens, is less important than how people in Scotland feel about their place and what kind of constitutional arrangement suits them. And that's where the union is failing, I think, at the moment to create a narrative that appeals to enough people for it to be able to put the idea of Scottish independence to rest. There may be pressure on Boris Johnson from Scotland to have a referendum, but if he refuses it, and if that's seen as a rejection of, of Scottish sovereignty or the Scottish people's ability to decide their own future, then that seems to be very likely to build long-term support for independence.
2: Absolutely. Robert Muir, pleasure to have you both on the podcast. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you liked what you've heard, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play and your smart speaker to receive the episodes as soon as they're released. And if you missed it earlier in the week, our latest interview special is out with Amber Rudd. I spoke to the former Home Secretary and Equalities Minister who had some rather strong words about Boris Johnson's approach to women in government and why she's embarrassed at the current state of the Tory party. You can find it on the usual podcast feed. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder, Josh de and Breen Turner. Until next time, thanks for listening.